Welcome to Supply Chain Now, the voice of global supply chain. Supply Chain Now focuses on the best in the business for our worldwide audience, the people, the technologies, the best practices, and today's critical issues, the challenges and opportunities. Stay tuned to hear from those making global business happen right here on Supply Chain Now. Hey, good morning. Scott Luton with you here on Supply Chain Now. Welcome to today's webinar. Folks, you're in store for something really special today, resiliency and agility. Hey, how many times have you heard those words in supply chain conversations this year? How about network or supply chain design? Has your organization been rethinking its approach there? Well, today you have the opportunity to learn from two of the best in the business, as we have Laura Ciceri and Dr. Madhav Durba with us here today. Laura, how are you doing? Couldn't be doing better. You know, as they say in West Virginia, fine as frog hair, and you? <laughs> Almost fine as frog hair. So great to have you, Laura. And uh, Dr. Madhav Durba, how are you doing? I'm doing great. By the way, spare the doctor, just call me Madhav. I'm good. Awesome. Well, <laughs> doing great. And how are you, Scott? We're doing wonderful. I'm not doing quite as good as someone that, that had a 100-mile uh, long-distance bike ride, but maybe we'll talk about that a little later on. Okay. So welcome, Madhav. Welcome, Laura. More on both of these uh, esteemed panelists here in just a minute. But hey, you're in for a treat today with these two panelists. Uh, let me introduce them, uh, our esteemed panel. First off, Laura Ciceri is founder of Supply Chain Insights, where she leverages 40 years of diverse supply chain experience to change the face of enterprise technologies, especially to help early adopters that are seeking that first mover advantage. She's the author of the popular blog, Supply Chain Shaman. She's host of the long-running podcast, Straight Talk with Supply Chain Insights. And Laura's mission is a simple and beautiful one, to help, to help supply chains make the world a better place. I love that. Laura, good morning again. Great to have you here. Thank you. All right. So with Laura, we have Dr. Madhav Durba, again, the Vice President of Supply Chain Strategy at Coupa Software, now, Monoff and his team help customers and prospects solve a wide variety of supply chain challenges. Prior to Coupa, Monoff held positions at Llamasoft, Canaxis, JDA Software, and I2 Technologies Incorporated. Now, with more than 20 years in the supply chain industry, Monoff has broad experience in strategy and process consulting, supply chain software, program management, software application development and deployment, and machine learning and data science. Madhav, great to have you once again. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So the question is not what we can solve here today, but what, we, what can we not solve today with uh, Laura and Madhav? But today's focus, again, that resiliency, that agility, uh, that really brings us to, Laura, I'm going to start with you, supply chain design, right? That's going to be a big thrust of our conversation here today. So I want to start with our first question to you, Laura. How could the use of supply chain design have improved outcomes in 2021? So, Scott, only 9% of companies actively design their supply chain, and most companies are basically using Excel spreadsheets, which it's hard to manage a complex nonlinear system like supply chain on an Excel spreadsheet. And the traditional supply chain process delivers an efficient supply chain, and the resilient supply chain is one that has the same ability for balance sheet results given variability. And the agile supply chain 
is designed to absorb variability. So if you're not actively designing, you're looking at buffers, push-pull decoupling points, form and function of inventory, location of suppliers, particularly with this high demand and supply variability environment, you can't be resilient and agile. And that's what a lot of people are finding out. Well said. Monoff, same question to you. You know, how could the use of supply chain design at all or a better approach to supply chain design have improved outcomes in 2021? Sure. So if you look at how the companies make decisions, right, most companies make their decisions based on a pre-existing thinking around supply chain planning and execution and so on and so forth. Oftentimes, the assumptions, the policies that guide these planning processes are set in stone, right? You Once you implement, once you go live, nobody goes back and questions and challenges those assumptions. But guess what happened, right? In the last year or so, all the pre-existing assumptions around the supply chains have been thrown out of the window. One has to completely reimagine how their supply chain should look like and operate. And those are the areas where supply chain design can be of great help. In terms of the outcomes, how about finding more toilet paper on the shelf, right? <laughs> so on that note, and before we go to you, know, Laura, you, you shared a powerful statistic, and I want to ask about that in a second. But Monov just brought up all these assumptions, right? All these assumptions that that organizations, leaders, practitioners have made, continue to make, and they go unchallenged, but they have such a powerful impact on, on, on how supply chains perform. You want to speak to that for a second, Laura? Well, I mean, you see it around us every day. One of the issues of the toilet paper shortage was the volume increased 23% and we couldn't stuff that volume through the retail doors. Now, if we had been doing active design, we would have looked at the middle mile and we would have looked at bringing that product directly to the stores or redesigning those warehouses. But we just think that we could make that fit. If we look at what's happening in Long Beach, Port of LA, we've got 39% more volume. We don't have enough chassis. We don't have enough chassis that are in working order. There's no one that's synchronizing those moves. And there's also the need for us to step back and rethink, could we do this regionally? Could we simplify that bill of materials? Could we change where we actually are doing our buffers? And we're only talking about the symptoms. We're talking about all the ships off the shore and the fact that ocean freight's five to seven times more expensive and that the variability is much higher. But I got to tell you, Scott, only 1% of companies have what I call a supply chain planning master database, which is looking at variability and how lead times and conversion rates are changing in this world of variability, and they're not designing for it. And so we're sort of asleep at the switch, continuing to talk about symptoms. Okay. So before, because I want to talk about the why there, you know, going way back to why only 9% of companies actively design their supply chains. Because as Laura said, Madov, we're, we're, we're reacting to, we're talking about much of the country, much of the globe is talking about the symptoms. But speak to that for a second, Madov. Why are only 9% of companies actively designing their supply chains? I think the key word that you use there is actively designing supply chain, right? So when you ask Somebody, are you designing your sub? Do you design your supply chain? More often than not, they say, Yeah, we design our supply chain, right? Oftentimes, you look at your supply chain maybe once in a year, once in two years, and make some adjustments, and off you go, right? So, 
I think the key word that you used is actively designing supply chains. So some of the some of the limitations that I see is first of all this thinking, right? The supply chain design is this episodic exercise that I undertake only when I need to. Otherwise, I'm just running my planning and execution processes and I'm happy. It's like saying that I go to gym once in six months or once in a year and I feel fit, right? <laughs> so, so, you know, that's part of the challenge. And part of the challenge is also in terms of what we talked about when these kind of disruptions strike, it's very easy to get myopic, right? We tend to trade our you know, telescope for the microscope, we get so narrowly focused on here and now that there is so much, so much talk about real-time visibility. Where is my shipment, right? If you know that your shipment is sitting on a ship that is sitting at the port for two weeks, it's like watching a crash in slow motion, right? There are things that you can do proactively. And the good news though is more and more conversations we are engaged in now Customers are asking us, how can I actively design my supply chain? So I love that. It's not headed in the right direction for sure. Okay, Laura. Again, Mod, I've already kind of touched on some we're going to be talking about next, which is some of the barriers, but let's make sure we really give a fully throated definition of the why. Why are only 9% of companies actively designing their supply chains, Laura? Let's start with what is actively designing. So I see that supply chain needs to be redesigned based upon variability and changes in lead times quarterly or monthly as part of that SNOP process. And most people are hardwired to think about network design as an ad hoc process that's really around bricks and mortar. They don't think about inventory as a buffer and the need to reconfigure. They don't think about what they need to do in the middle mile and the variability of nodes. And it's a totally different discussion. And I often find that the people that use the design tools, which, you know, Lamasoft purchased by Coupa is a great set of tools, are very low in the organization. And the supply chain strategy work is typically happening in the finance organization on the back of Excel spreadsheets, and they don't know each other. In fact, I often will introduce them and talk to them about the use of design tools. So five reasons. The people doing supply chain strategy don't understand the tools and the need to really model complex nonlinear systems. Two, there's a general lack of the terminology associated with active supply chains and how to put that into the processes in a systemic way. Three, we're not tracking variability and holding ourselves accountable for resilience and agility to be able to really embrace variability. Four, we're not really bringing that into systemic processes and asking ourselves about the design do we have a feasible plan? Are we able to execute? And the fifth thing, which is probably the most problematic, is when I do surveys and I ask people about the biggest barriers to drive progress, it's the understanding of the executive team. And I think we've been lulled to sleep saying, we got that end-to-end -end supply chain strategy, which is typically about transactional efficiency, order to cash, procure to pay, but most people don't understand decision support, how to make decisions and how to use these technologies. And I find the weaknesses in the executive team. I love that. All right, Simonov, let's pick it up there. We, we started to touch on some of the barriers both of you already have. What else are we leaving out? You know, how do we change this current state? 
Sure. I think uh, it all starts with the tone at the top, having the right executive sponsorship, right? Somebody with the charisma. Laura touched on this, right? This is like a team sport. When you're designing your supply chain, you are driving the cross-functional alignment. So really that executive sponsorship becomes absolutely critical. The second thing is in terms of the talent, right? Acquiring the talent and retaining the talent as well. If you don't show the love to these people who are designing your supply chain, there is going to be turnover in the organization, right? Acknowledge the value they bring to the table. But part of that also is bringing their great analysis into fruition, right? And championing that. That becomes the role of the executive sponsor. Uh, really building uh, strong relations with the university programs and recruiting some of the right talent from some of the good supply chain programs out there and feeding that funnel, if you will, into the organization is absolutely critical. The other thing I would touch upon is oftentimes I hear that objection that my barrier to adoption to design is my data is not ready. Let's face it, your data will never be ready, right? It will never be 100% perfect. But if only you can build... I'd seen wonders happen when people visualize their supply chain map for the first time, let alone doing any analysis on that. All sorts of ideas start flowing through in that room, right? So... Some of those things, and last but not the least, having the right technology. Laura talked about you know, Excel spreadsheets and things like that. Yeah, you can do an analysis, but how do you operationalize those recommendations, right? That's where technology becomes an enabler. So I see some of these as the barriers slash you know, bridges to cross. Right, opportunities. All right, so Laura, I want to pose two of those that Monav just shared to you. And I want to start with... He talked a lot about ex, you know the, the involvement, the engagement, the sponsorship of executives, right? The folks at the top, really leadership throughout uh, the organization. Speak to that a second. How critical is the involvement of our leaders? Off the charts. Let me tell you a story. I was working with a beverage company, and this beverage company was in the supply chain Sid Meier doing extremely well. And then they decided to do product portfolio enlargement. But they didn't have a feasible plan because every time you add a product to the portfolio, you increase the need for manufacturing capacity and cycle stock. And so they didn't understand that. And they didn't understand that they were asking their manufacturing operation to do the impossible. So I brought in a team with Llamasoft experience and using the Llamasoft tools, which is now owned by Coupa. And we started the modeling exercise. And I got to tell you, the CEO stood up in the middle of the meeting and went, oh, my gosh, I just didn't understand. I didn't understand the complexity of cycle stock and inventory planning because most people are only looking at safety stock. They're not looking at in transit and cycle stock and they're not looking at variability. And I believe executives are visual learners and experiential learners. And people will talk the language of we need to do design, but when executives see it, they get up out of their chairs and they go to the screen and they're so excited and they want to do what if analysis and they want to understand why. Uh, and it's, it, that's a, it's the human element, right? We all want to understand what, what is just outside of our grasp. Hey, can, I add, can I add something, yeah, please. Scott? Yeah. Uh, what Laura just said is, I think at the heart of it, people have the right intentions, right? Oftentimes, it's missing that intuition that if I connect these dots, here is the trade-off, right? So, for example, you're approaching your end of the fiscal year and you want to bleed down your inventory, but guess what? There is a cliff event when the next month 
day one comes along, right? So how do you make sure that you're understanding this visibility and the trade-offs across functions becomes very important in driving that change? Excellent point. All right, I'm going to data next because, Monoff, I love what you said about your data is never going to be ready. So hold that thought. Laura, I'm coming to you next. I want to share just a couple of quick comments here. And, folks, I'm trying to organize uh, our comments taskbar was not ready for the tidal wave of good stuff that comes in from the folks tuning in. Uh, Sophia is with us today, one of our favorites, a true ambassador of global supply chain. Sophia says, I echo what Laura says about lack of understanding of how these tools for supply chain design can help us improve our decisions. It is mostly shown when starting the model. The depth of detail and the scope of it is always a challenge. Uh, well said, Sophia. Well said. Okay. Laura, Madov earlier before the last exchange talked about how the data is is pointed at pointed to maybe as an excuse of why why we can't change. Data is not ready. We don't we don't have, we're not gathering the right data, or we've got too much of it. We're not sure what how to prioritize or whatever the feedback is. What's your take there? Sort of like dieting, right? I'm going <laughs> to wait until tomorrow. It's like the biggest excuse ever, right? It's like get on with it, whatever data you got, and just get moving. You know, it is like the largest excuse. And if I look at business results, I think that supply chain leaders, on one hand, need to pat themselves on the back that we've done 35% more volume. But on the other hand, we have underdelivered on resilience and agility. We talk the talk, but we don't know how to walk the walk. And that needs to change. Agreed. It must change. It absolutely must change. Really quick, Amanov, I'm going to come to you for one last comment around data before we maybe point to some of those that are really doing well. And we're going to have, uh, we, we probably have about 17 questions already submitted. So we may have a, a jumbo Q&A uh, session here that, uh, towards the end of today's session. So uh, get those questions in. Let's say mem memory says, memory, great to have you here today, says failure to communicate how the benefits of agile supply chains benefit the people who make supply chains happen. It's a big problem. It needs to become the language and practice of management and leadership. Excellent point, memory. One other comment from Johan. He says, hooray for visual supply chain analytics. I think there was a lot of passion in that response there. Okay, Johan just mentioned analytics. We're talking data. Manoff, you've talked about how folks point to the fact that our data is not ready. Elaborate a little bit more on that, and we're going we're gonna to switch gears a bit. Sure. Uh, oftentimes, it points to two things, right? I don't have all the sources of data I need, and I don't have the data of the right quality. My advice always is start with the use case first. What business problem are you trying to solve? Maybe you don't need all the data that you're thinking about, right? So that's one. The second thing is, there are holes in the data. Let's work together. Maybe there are some reasonable assumptions that we can put in, put in place to start with, right? To... Laura's point, don't wait until your data is perfect, right? So there are ways around that, right? To be able to interpolate data, there are ways to plug the holes in the data, but it has to be use case driven. And then once you start laying that foundation, organically go grow from there as opposed to, I got this data in this different spreadsheet and this data in this different database. Let's not proliferate that problem. Let's start laying that data foundation and keep expanding on that as well. Well said. All right, I'm going to stick one more question in here before we point to uh, some of those organizations that are really getting this right and doing well. You mentioned technology earlier, Madoff, and goodness knows we've got no shortage of technology options in today's uh, supply chain 
tech golden age. Uh, Laura, I'll come to you. We've had plenty of conversations previously about the effective use and, and implementation of technology and those that just go after all the shiny objects. And, and to memory's point, perhaps, I think it was memory, it burns people out, right? They don't get it. It's just implementation after implementation. Nothing gets solved. Nothing gets effectively and sustainably changed. So speak to this, this golden age of supply chain technology and maybe what you've seen well-performing organizations. How, how do they approach it? Well, you know, in many organizations, supply chain design technology is sort of like that stationary bike in the exercise room that's not used. You know, in fact, I will go into organizations and I will call, you know, Madhav and I say, does this company have a license? And he'll tell me who and I'll introduce them and I'll educate them on, you know, what the capabilities are, because Many people see it as a bricks and mortar exercise that they're only going to do network design when they need a new warehouse or they need a new manufacturing site. They don't think about it in terms of flow and variability. And I really challenge people because in the last decade, three things have happened, Scott. We've invested in ERP systems, which are really good on transactions, order to pay, procure to, procure to pay, order to cash but we've not really cracked the nut in decision support. Secondly, alignment has grown. There are bigger issues between finance and operations and operations and sales, and it's because we've invested in functional excellence. And third, people aren't clear on supply chain excellence. They'll say they want supply chain excellence, but really what most people are advocating is the lowest cost efficient supply chain, and they don't realize they have multiple supply chains, and that some can be efficient, but others need to be agile and resilient, and it requires a different set of techniques. I love that. And, and, and all the definitions of supply chain excellence, kind of you alluded to, can be very different. And even in one single organization, does the whole team know Absolutely. what that means? Um, Absolutely. All right, so Monoff, whether you want to piggyback on something Laura shared there, as we kind of just uh, one final thought around technology, we're going to talk about you know, some of the folks are getting it right. But how would you advise a listener when it comes to not just selecting, but successfully implementing the right technology these days? Yeah, start small, think big, right? That's what I would suggest is have an end goal in mind, but the technology of today can be consumed in bite sizes, right? That's the big difference from the days of the ERP systems, right? These are no longer don't need to be like a, long drawn out multi-year deployments. Yeah, you could have a multi-year strategy that is absolutely fine, but break it down into, into bite sizes and start giving that to the organization, right? So frankly, in a matter of 12 weeks or so, eight to 12 weeks, we had seen design projects come to fruition and then organically expand from there. I love that. Measured take. So let's put aside that old example about how to eat an elephant. Let's use, how do you eat uh, a box of French fries? One French fry at a time, to your point, Madhav. All right. So let's, a really quick example, Kavan says, executives are visual learners. I think one of you mentioned that, Laura and Madhav. Great point, Kavan says. All decisions, all decision support systems, rather, should provide a tool for visualizing the results and showing how the decisions suggested can impact the outcomes. Well said, Kavan. And Sandra, it's great to have you here, Sandra. She says, exactly, get out of that cost reduction mindset. For the love of God, she says. So great to see you, Sandra. Okay, so let's move then. Uh, we're almost right on time, Laura Monov. How about that? 
let's talk about who's doing it well. You know, both of you have already shared in, in uh, roughly 20 minutes time, a ton of analysis and observations around the challenges we have, the massive challenges we have, and some of the solutions out there to break through. But who would you point to as, as who's doing this really well? Laura, we'll stick with you. Who's out there with a cape on? Well, my candidates are Schneider Electric and Ikea. And both have leadership that is clear on the definition of supply chain excellence. And they've built capabilities to make these tools to do what-if simulation and connect them to systemic processes. I'm not saying they're all perfect, but those are my candidates. Wonderful. Those are two great candidates uh, that we probably can all relate to in a variety of ways, uh, including some of that furniture that Amanda is much more skilled and adept at. She, she takes all the tools away from me, Laura and Madov, occasionally. Probably rightfully so, Scott. <laughs> you know, Amanda rules your place, you know. That's right. Okay, on that note, big thanks to Amanda and Jada and Alice and some of the others behind the scenes, uh, Trisha and Gina, you name it, that are helping to make the production happen today. All right, so Monov, same question. Who's doing this well? Who's wearing the cape out there these days? I think Laura covered two of my favorites already, for sure. Uh, you know, especially when you look at uh, IKEA, they have design and planning under one umbrella. It is very important, right, to make sure because the we talked about earlier about the assumptions and policies that guide planning oftentimes come from design. Beyond that, uh, maybe if I were to pick a couple, my favorites would be, uh, beyond what Laura mentioned, uh, I would pick CHEP as an example. They're a Brambles company. They're, they, the they have, pallet company. They do pallet company, right? So they are designing circular supply chains and uh, making the world sustainable, right? Uh, St. Gobain is another one that comes to my mind. What is interesting about them is uh, they, they are designing their networks, their transportation logistics networks, exploring internal synergies between multiple business units. And if I'm delivering to the same customer, can the products go through this, go in the same truck? But they're also looking at externally as well, right? Because design does not have to be confined to the four walls of your company. They're also looking at external uh, companies like uh, Heineken, for example, and St. Gobain partner together in uh, 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 jointly shipping product into the market. So, you know, those are those are some examples that come to my mind. You get cost cost savings on lock, but you also make the world a better place, more sustainable. Love that. Okay, so as we start to uh, make progress towards Q and A here today, let's let's look future. Let's look ahead, right? Let's look at what's next. Uh, let's put our shades on because the future is bright. I believe as we continue to solve some of these persistent challenges that we've all alluded to, uh, at least a few of here on today's call. So, Laura, what does the future look like for supply chain leaders? I think we have democratization of data, and we have the digital twin on all their desks, and they can do their own what-if analysis. And we've got what I call the market-driven knowledge graph, which allows us to see balanced scorecards and the impact of decisions. And if we have a feasible plan, why did we ever define supply chain planning so only 3% of the back office organization actually gets that data? And they're low-level people. They turn over a lot. So I think we have a rebirth of decision support and a redefinition, and it's ubiquitous, and it's democratized. I love that. Uh, democratization that is such a wonderful trend. It's been rippling out across global business for quite some time. Monov, same question to you. What does the future look like for supply chain leaders? 
hopefully very bright, <laughs> right? But Laura hit the nail on the head. So almost uh, give this analogy of uh, flight simulator, right? So before I make any big needle moving decision from an executive standpoint, do I have the simulation cockpit in which I can test out different ideas and then put them to practice in the real world, right? And being able to do so at speed and scale becomes a very critical core capability. Let's face it, supply chains are going to undergo massive shifts, right? If you take automotive industry, 3% of the cars today are electric, whereas 10 years from now, it could be one third of the cars, right? So when the world is changing so rapidly, being able to evolve as quickly with the, with the speed of change, right? Is, is also absolutely critical. So hopefully they will have these systems at their disposal that will flex as their needs change. Love that. And we all need to flex more these days, right? All the more uh, reason to follow y'all's example and, and become physically fit. Uh, Laura and Madhav in the pre-show conversation was making me feel bad for my lack of progress, but hey, <laughs> challenge duly accepted. So one final question, and we're going to get into Q&A. And folks, we're going to have, we're going to have quite a bit of time to work through some, some, some Q&A here today. And, of course, Laura Modoff, as, as other things come to mind based on these, uh, this critical area of resiliency and agility, especially when it comes to supply chain design, active supply chain design, we've got time for more comments from you both. But what is, Laura, starting with you, out of what we've talked about in the first 30 minutes or so of today's webinar, what is one key takeaway that folks that are tuned in got to make sure they leave this conversation with? I think the first discussion we had about active design. I think when people hear network design, it's sort of like, you know, old stuff. Like, you know, they've got these preconceived ideas that it's one off, it's ad hoc, it's done by a team, it's for part of the supply chain. And it's usually only when we're exploring bricks and mortar. I think this concept of an active cross-functional source make deliver together, looking at options and what if simulation that lays above the tactical horizon of planning is something that's not well understood. And so I want people to think hard about active design, how it ties to product portfolio management, how it ties to SNOP, how it ties to supplier development and strategic procurement how it ties to new product launch and really make it part of the core fabric of supply chains. And the second thing is be really clear on what is supply chain excellence and what is the objective function and what are the trade-offs? I love that. Uh, two big things. And you make a great point, Laura. You know, Network designs, so a lot of folks may go straight to transportation when they hear that phrase, making sure trucks are making those right-hand turns, right? Back in my, my, my distribution days. And you got it, right? That's yeah, right-hand right turns. It's bigger than that, to your point. And I love how mm -hmm. both of y'all have really embraced uh, that supply chain design phraseology. Monoff, same thing for you. So Laura gave us a couple because uh, today is bonus Tuesday. I love that. What's one thing, one key takeaway folks that are tuned in here have got to leave this conversation with? Maybe I'm doubling down on what Laura already said, but the move from episodic to a continuous design paradigm right? Match the clock speeds of design with your S&OP processes. Otherwise, you're working in a highly constrained environment where the cards are already dealt and you're trying to play the best hand you can. Design allows you a lot more flexibility and optionality. Well said. And that's okay. Doubling down is perfectly fine in conversations like this. I think, folks, uh, hopefully y'all have taken 
at least a page of notes uh, like I have here today. Usually it, it, it's closer to 17 pages when we have Laura and Madov with us. All right, so folks, we're going to move into Q&A, right? We, we've kind of had a 30-minute session with a nice primer, but we're going to spend the next 20 or so minutes posing your questions to Laura and Madoff. So this is your opportunity. We're not going to be able to get to all of the questions that, that are submitted today. However, we're going to pass your questions over to our friends, uh, Laura and Madoff, and maybe, who knows, maybe you'll have a chance to share a cup of coffee and a phone call after today's session. I want to start with this question, uh, and then Madoff, I'll start with you here. This is from Nanda. You stress the need for actively, big A, capital A, actively designing. Many times I have experienced a lack of dynamic tools to design a supply chain, which takes into account external inputs dynamically. What would your advice be? So first of all, uh, Nanda is the one who is joining from India. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Well, hopefully we're keeping you up still. So that's great. So start with the data that you have. Sometimes it is internal data, internal data feeds. Uh, that's where you would start. Bringing in external data signals, uh, increasingly where I'm seeing this design space evolving towards is more of a closed loop process. It's not that you just design something and then you throw it over the wall. Instead, learn from the data that is emerging. Once you make that decision and execute, learn from the data and being able to bridge that back and close the loop. The technology is already starting to get there. So Nanda, my advice to you would be take a hard look at where you are at right now in terms of the technological capabilities you have, but also pay attention to where the world is evolving towards, right? And uh, see how you can bridge that. Love that. Very nicely said, Madoff. Great question, Nanda. Laura, would you add anything to that? Yeah, I think let's don't get structurally encased in yesterday's solutions, right? So if we look at, you know, what's happening in in-memory models, what's happening in cloud-based solutions, the capabilities have greatly increased. And people need to explore the envelope of, you know, simulation and what-if optimization and the world of NoSQL. <laughs> I love that. So on Twitter, this is going to be a two-part. I'm going to share a, perhaps a, a question that they're not looking for an answer on. A rhetorical question, thank you very much. And then I'm going to ask you all both a question from Christine that is looking for an answer. So our dear friend Tom Craig uh, on Twitter says, any thoughts on how much of an ERP system is utilized? 10%, 25%. Uh, and then from Tom's rhetorical question to Christine's question, how do we get organizations to recognize that just investing in ERP does not solve these complex supply chain problems? And I will start with you, Madoff. What, what would your response to Christine's question be? So I think, first of all, on the ERP question, if I recollect, Laura has done some research already in terms of what percentage of companies actually use that. I remember that, Laura. Uh, in terms of Christine's question about how do you convince a leader who thinks that ERP is all I need, right? One thing to keep in mind is the world is turning more outside in at this point in time, right? What's happening beyond the four walls of your company is going to impact you more than what's happening within the four walls of your company. In an ERP world, you're locked into the data within the four walls of your company. While that can be a starting point, that cannot be the end point, right, where you end up. So uh, I think the key is to, have them acknowledge that the what is happening around in the world 
And that data is not sitting in your ERP systems. You have to tap into those external sources of data. So I may steal one of Laura's phrases, the planning is going to turn outside in, and that's what the leadership needs to be prepared for. You sound just like Ermanov. Uh If we've heard it once, <laughs> we've heard it a thousand times. There's a lot of truth to that. So uh, outside in. Uh, so Laura, how would you respond to Christine's question about, oh, if we just invest in ERP, we live in utopia. I have a deep sigh, right? I've been an industry analyst for two decades, and it really gets down to follow the money. The systems that the consultants are making the most money off of are ERP. The executives are listening to the high-priced consultants. Most of the high-priced consultants really don't know much about supply chain. And so we're looking at transactional systems. We're not looking at how do we embrace the world of variability. And I'm hoping that when every CFO has to go to the microphone and tell investors that they failed, they're reflecting on the fact that they've only invested in ERP and they really do not know supply chain. And I'm hoping that it opens up a new world for supply chains and logistics leaders to come to the table with simulation and what-if optimization from tools like Modov and to show them the stupidity of the investments of the last decade. And that's my hope. Well said. <laughs> so they got to answer. There's a reckoning is, is the picture I, in my mind as you shared that, Laura, uh, a big reckoning. And uh, investing in the ERP does not prove that you know uh, how global supply chain works. All right, different direction here with this next question. Uh, th and we've got a ton of, of great questions submitted. We'll try to get to as many as we can as time allows. Inga says, and Laura, I'm gonna stick with you on this question here. What is the biggest opportunity you see in SNOP? What is your advice on the topic? The biggest opportunity is to look at market data and to decouple the SNOP process from the budget and to bring in network design tools. In the last decade, we have coupled SNOP directly to the budget, which is really a handicap with great variability, and really bring in those network design tools. Well said. And Monav, same question to you. What, what biggest opportunity do you see in SNOP? So it's really testing out those assumptions, right, and the policies and rules that guide your SNOP processes. Peel the onion a layer or two and start questioning those underlying assumptions. Oftentimes, I get frustrated when SNOP conversations are all about striking the demand supply balancing and assuming that everything else is fixed, right? So, so it just really restricts organizations. So, I think the big opportunity I see is being able to relax those hard baked assumptions around SNOP. Well said. Well said. A couple of quick comments before I get to our next question here. Corey says, very well said, guys, on ERP systems. It is within the four walls focused only, not your extended supply chain. Good stuff there, Corey. Randall says, most investors do not know to ask a CEO or CFO about these issues. Uh, Gerald says, I echo the statement by Laura about separating the budget from the SNOP process. Good stuff there. Okay, this next question is going uh, to take me a minute to read through it. So a little bit of question, a little bit of perspective around it. Laura, you had a name for these questions uh, last time we were together, but it's kind of multi-point. So y'all bear with me, okay? This comes It's from a triple-decker sandwich, right? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Submarine sandwich, that's right. So like Doug, a club sandwich, you know? <laughs> 
Douglas says, hey, Mod Off Laura, great information. Do you see these disruptions that have upset our finely tuned supply chains going forward? Or do you expect these norm-busting variations to continue going forward? It seems we've been lulled into passivity with a level of seeming stability over the past 10 years pre-COVID. How do we convince our leadership executives that it's probably not going to go back to predictable stability? What a nice question there. Uh, Monaf, I'll start with you and I'll circle back to Laura. Just look at the recent history, right? The, the best thing you can do is pick, in fact, I have a slide like that that shows that all the disruptions and the frequency at which and the magnitude at which these disruptions are now striking supply chains, those windows are starting to shrink. Just this year alone, we had Texas winter storms that caused global plastic shortage. We had a ship getting stuck on Suez Canal. We have port congestion. So if you history is not on our side, if we believe that we are going to get into a new steady state where the world is going to be very rosy, so let's better be prepared. Well said, Madhav. Uh, Laura? I think every time a company fails because of supply chain, it is a great discussion for us to have as a case study about the fact that we assumed five things in the supply chain that are no longer applicable. We assumed that transportation would always be there. We just had to negotiate price. Look at all the RFPs. Look at the pushing back of receivables against those carriers. We need to be accountable. We have assumed that 3% of people can plan in an organization and that we can invest in transactional systems and that people don't have to own the plan. People need to own the plan. We've assumed that if we just focus on safety stock, we got to inventory manage. No, we've got to focus on cycle stock and in transit stock and obsolescence and really manage inventory. It's our most important buffer and it's our biggest source of waste. Fourth, we've only focused on volume with inflation happening, the price inflation, the need for bidirectional orchestration will increase. And our systems aren't able to do that absent network design. And fifth, we've assumed that the efficient supply chain can be efficient with these conditions and it cannot be. And so as we think about the inefficient supply chain with erratic lead times and uncertain conversion costs, and the inability of suppliers to deliver, we've got to rethink our basics. And I think it's a wonderful opportunity every time a company fails. Apple, look at their returns. Why? It's the investment in Foxconn and it's the fact that they're not good at demand management. They're not using market data. Every day, one of those case studies is gonna hit the Wall Street Journal. And it's a great learning for us in vitro to test basic assumptions because the biggest issue we have is right here, our ability to unlearn what we think are great practices. Well said, uh, well said. Madoff, you're, you're nodding your head as well. I think uh, both of y'all are, are deacons in the church of challenging <laughs> assumptions these days, right? That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Amen, brother. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Wonderful. All right. Hey, really quick, before we move forward, and I got about 1247. We've got about 10 more minutes with Laura and Mada. We've got a few more questions submitted. Well, more than a few. Uh, inventory is full with questions. But, you know, Mada said a second ago, 
that uh, he had some slides. You know, both Laura and Madoff are great follows and connections across social media. Make sure you connect or follow Laura and Madoff on LinkedIn in particular. And folks, I also want to mention this now before we wait to the end. If you want to learn more about how continuous supply chain design can reduce risk, improve resilience, and turn supply chain challenges into a competitive advantage, how beautiful would that be? You can download Coupa's ebook, Continuous Design Outsmarts Disruption and Imperative for Supply Chain Resiliency. And you can download that right here. It's on the GoToWebinar toolbar. You can click the download uh, button and you should have that. If, if for some reason Murphy's Law intervenes, just reach out to us. We'll make sure you get a copy. Okay, continuing right along. This is a great question. And, you know, in a pre-show, Laura and Madoff, as we got our teams together, we had about 20 things we wanted to work through. And they were 20 of the best questions. But we're like, hey, we got an hour. Let's, let's kind of streamline it down to here. Well, this touches on talent, which is one of the one of those questions we were going we were going to uh, uh, share initially. This comes from Scott, and I'm oppose this to Madoff first. Uh, should manufacturing organizations target having supply chain design talent with their differentiated quantitative skills and specialized tool sets as part of the organization, or should they rely on outside help from consultants and contractors for design? and then leverage analytics to monitor supply chain performance? Wow, that is quite a question. Madhav, your take. Okay, so I'll, I'll tell you based on what I have seen work well, right? A center of excellence driven approach. However you staff it, right? It could be external consultants coming in and helping you out, your own internal staff and whatnot, but really establishing that analytics center of excellence and making sure that the center of excellence is very closely tied to your planning and execution uh, of arms of the business, right? To make sure that any recommendations that are made are getting implemented is absolutely critical. So it's not one or the other, but to me that linchpin is going to be having that focused center of excellence is what drives it. Staffing of that, it, it, it depends. It could be internal. It could be you could externally source them, but you can't you can't outsource your problems away to to others. Is the crux of it? So, Laura, same question. What when it comes to talent, what would your advice be? Build it in house and um, train your executives to do their own supply chain design. But the tools and the capabilities we have today, you know, we should be really designing actively at the executive level and, you know, do it yourself. Yep. I'm with you. All right. This first question came from a comment you made on the front end of the conversation going back a ways. And it, it's, uh, it's about planning, which is one of our favorite topics around here. Before I get to the question, Laura, one of the best parts of your conference back in September was you had a a super planner, someone that does really well in that role, speak and give best practices. Madhav, you were there as well. Yes. That was a stroke of brilliance. And I think one of the best things you, we heard from her, all three of us did, was, you know, we got to recognize our planners. We got to love on them. We got to hug on them and, and thank them for what they do for the whole organization. And Laura, you want to comment on that really quick? So the best red blog post uh, in my whole supply chain shaman career is, have you given your demand planner some love today? And they don't feel satisfied in the job. They're beat up. And most people feel that the tools that they have don't work well. 
because we've hardwired them into the back office and they can't do what if simulation and they can't really look at variability. We need to change that. And, you know, it was really eye opening for me when I started being open to the fact that how we've designed demand planning doesn't work for demand planners. We need to do better. Agreed. We must do better. And, and Madoff, your quick comments before I pose this question from Blaine. So, so in terms of uh, showing love to your planners, right, I would say the same thing about uh, uh, people who model and design their supply chains, right? Oftentimes, organizations fail to provide the right career pathways for this kind of talent, especially when you're building your supply chain and designing your supply chain. You have that end-to-end -end perspective, very unique perspective that you can bring to bear. And... Uh, oftentimes I see these this kind of talent being grossly underserved and what happens, that's where you have retention issues. Right. And so really investing in their career growth, investing in their education, ongoing education and providing that impetus would go a long way. Love that. And and hey, we got to give our planners and those those supply chain designers you just mentioned, Madhav, the right tools, right? And support the right ones, not the latest and shiniest, but those that really work and, and move the organization ahead in addition to the recognition. Okay. Uh, Blaine asked Laura then, uh, the master supply chain planning database is intriguing. Can you elaborate? Well, I think people should take the signals of loading, unloading, arrival, and they should record it by lane. And they should be looking at not only what it is, but the variability. And then they need to feed that into their batch systems for planning. And they need to look at shifts in conversion rate as they run manufacturing and the impact of product proliferation and make these discussions data driven. We're not doing that. We run our planning processes with the same old assumptions that when they were installed, and they're not really looking at variability and current factors. Hmm. Madhav, any comments? Sure, I'll give an uh, example, right? Uh, recently with the COVID impact and all that, uh, some of the work we had done in the area of demand planning, for example, or demand modeling, relying on three-year his historical indicators is not giving the right information for CPG companies. However, when you bring in things like Google mobility indices, right? How much are people moving about? Are they stuck at home? Are they going to entertainment establishments and how are those patterns changing provides you a whole new set of insights, right? That's where this marrying external data with internal data becomes absolutely critical. And uh, I agree with Laura on that, that supply chain master planning database needs to incorporate these not so traditional data streams into that process. Well said. Okay. And, Go ahead, Laura. People shouldn't just think about master data as transactional data. They need to think about it as the data that is used ubiquitously across people. Christine says, yes, yes, yes. Dynamic data versus static master data that is not updated and does not reflect what is happening today in your supply chains. Love that, Christine. One final question uh, from Wallace here today. And I hate to say that because there's I'm really enjoying these conversations and, and, and all the uh, folks, all the things we're getting from the uh, the cheap seats or the, the sky boxes, depending on how you how you view the comment section. This comes from Wallace. And, uh, and Madoff, I'm going to pose this to you first. In supply chain design, is there enough buy-in of a deductive process in building our master schedules? Or do you start with a fresh set of ideas and strategic plans that are drawn from our preconceived needs 
before our ideas are validated and documented. Madhav, your thoughts? If I understand the question correctly, you know, are you, do we look back into the history and use that as the basis for the designing your supply chain? Or do you want to look into the future? Maybe that's, that's how I'm kind of interpreting that. I would look into the future. I would look into the future and design a supply chain for future as opposed to this is how my supply chain ran and this is this is what has worked for me, right? So that's how I think about that. Start from maybe a, I'm not understanding the question as well, but that's that's my interpretation based on what I what I sense there. Yep. And Wallace is a great question. Wallace is, you know, he says looking into the future as a as a follow-up. So uh, I think we're tracking there. You gotta start with that white open canvas like Laura Monoff, y'all both did back in September with the the visual illustrations, which we really loved. Yeah. <laughs> so Laura, your your take on that question from Wallace. I think that you do need to have the design planners working in concert and archiving their plans. I'm amazed how few companies archive their plans. When I first started studying active network design, I was doing some work with HP and they had a group of master planners and they would archive their plans and they would compete and they would share plans across the world. And then when they started, they would start with a white sheet of paper, but they could go back to historic plans and they could tweak it and they could learn from it. Three things I see people aren't doing. Number one, network design and doing it actively. Number two, even saving plans. And number three, going back and questioning how good was that plan. Well said. Uh, and we got to leave it there as much as we hate to do so. But hey, be sure to check out, to connect, follow Laura and Madov across uh, uh, social media. Uh, Laura Cesari, again, big thanks to you, the founder of Supply Chain Insights. And uh, Dr. Madov Durba, Vice President, Supply Chain Strategy at Coupa Software. Big thanks to you as well. Thanks, Scott. And thanks, Laura. You as bet. always, enjoy talking. And thanks to everybody behind the scenes. Most importantly, thanks to everybody that showed up here today. Don't forget, you can check out the ebook, Continuous Design, Outsmarts Disruption, an imperative for supply chain resiliency in the download section of GoToWebinar. Be sure to find more conversations like this one at supplychainnow.com. On behalf of our entire team here, Scott Luton signing off for now. Hey, challenging you to do good, give forward, be the change that's needed. And on that note, we'll see you next time right back here at Supply Chain Now. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for being a part of our Supply Chain Now community. Check out all of our programming at supplychainnow.com and make sure you subscribe to Supply Chain Now anywhere you listen to podcasts and follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. See you next time on Supply Chain Now.